Well, let's jump in here. We all know the miracle that is the resurrection of Jesus three days after his death. Amen? Amen. But this morning, I'd like to take you not directly to the resurrection. I'd like to take you to uh, what I would estimate to be the climax of all history. The climax of all history. And I don't say that lightly. I say that very intentionally. All Scripture leads to the last three hours of the crucifixion. Let me say that again. All Scripture leads to the last three hours of the crucifixion. And that's where we're going to spend our time this morning, in the last three hours of Calvary. All Scripture leads to this moment. Every story, every image, every example, every episode, every act, every person in Scripture points to this moment in all of eternity. Not only that, not only does all Scripture lead to this moment, all eternity hinges. And that word hinge is a very intentional picture again. All eternity hinges on these last three hours. In these last three hours of the crucifixion, everything changes. Amen? Everything changes. It is the crux. It is the hinge. It is the pinnacle. It is the climax of all of history. Everything before it points to it. Everything after it points back to it. It is the difference maker. And you say, well, what about the resurrection? Well, you might say, you might say that the resurrection is sort of the icing on the cake. Amen? And you'll, you'll understand what I mean by that here in a few moments. You see, the miracles, the miracles don't begin at the resurrection. You know, when we think about the resurrection, we think about the Easter holiday and the Easter weekend, we tend to think of, of, the, of the miracle of the resurrection. But I want you to know, and this morning we're going to focus our attention uh, back a few hours, back a few days onto the cross before the resurrection. And I want to show you that there are miracles not to be missed on the cross, which will make the resurrection simply icing on the cake. I'll just tell you that I, what I give you this morning in, um, in abbreviated form, because there are, there are many weeks that we could spend on this one topic, but what I give you this morning in abbreviated form is without a doubt the most important news and information in all of the world. And that's a big statement. I know that. I hope you get it by the time we're done. In my study the last few weeks, it seems to me uh, that I have met Jesus all over again. I hope to communicate just a little bit of that to you, that you might get just a little bit of what I've felt in the last few weeks in my study of these passages. Here are my prayers. For the Christian, I pray that after this morning, after our message, as we go into singing, that you are caused by what you see in Scripture, by some of the details that maybe you've not, you've not picked up on in the crucifixion, particularly the last few hours of the crucifixion. My prayer for you, believers, is that you fall in love with Jesus as I have, afresh and anew, and that you sit in awe, that you sit bewildered by our God and our King and our Creator and our sacrifice once again. Uh, if you are not... A believer. If you have never been, and I'll use the words of Jesus, if you have never been born again, 
My prayer is that as you have somehow found your way to this place, providentially, my prayer is that on this Easter weekend, the mass of evidence of this life and death of this historical figure, Jesus, uh, my prayer is that it overwhelms you. My prayer is that it overwhelms you. Now, here, here's the important part, important part. My prayer is not just that the historical man, Jesus, impress you. Because he died, he died a, maybe a wrongly, uh, as a wrongly accused person, that he died uh, as a martyr for some righteous cause, or even that he died as a heroic gesture against man's inhumanity towards other humanity. It was much, much more than those things. There are many in our world who know of Easter. They know the story of Easter and they look at Jesus as a good example, as a good model. It is more than that. Jesus Christ came and died supremely for one reason. Not to teach, not to be an example, but in the words of Jesus, he came to be a ransom for many. That was his purpose. That was why he was sent by the Father. That was what he had set out to accomplish in route to the cross. He was not here just simply as a good teacher or as a model. He didn't die as just one wrongly accused. He wasn't just a martyr for some righteous cause. He wasn't just, it wasn't just a heroic gesture against the inhumanity in our world. Jesus came and died to give his life a ransom for many. The Gospel of Luke says that great crowds gathered at the crucifixion of Jesus. And Luke uses a, a, very, a very picturesque word. He says that great crowds gathered at the spectacle that was the cross. Literally, that word spectacle could be translated the theater that was the crucifixion of Jesus. And after they saw what they saw happen... In those hours on the cross, in the death of Christ, in the suffering of Christ, it says that they went away beating their chests, mourning, in contrition, because of what God had theatrically displayed in this great drama before all of humanity. God on the cross paints this, this picture. It plays out, if you will, before man. So this morning, two things, two things. I, I pray that um, you get a glimpse of that of that spectacle as God has intended it. Some of the details that maybe we've overlooked. Number two, I pray that not only do you get a glimpse of that spectacle, I pray that as the crowds who gathered at that spectacle, they left changed. I pray we all leave changed. Not beating our breasts in mourning and contrition, but we leave changed, rejoicing that God has called us to himself and made a way. And you're going to see that. All right. So you hang in there for the next oh, 20 minutes, 30 minutes. And then I promise we're, we're going to sing so loud that uh, you're going to lose your voice and have to just go back there and we'll all sit and eat in silence because we're going to be so impressed by this God. Of the crucifixion. And we're going to sing to him when we're done. Watch this. Matthew 27. Records. The last three hours of the crucifixion. This way. 
Uh, don't worry about grabbing your Bible. I might just prefer this morning that you just listen. If you'd like to follow along, Matthew 27, verse 45, says this. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, in Aramaic, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there when they heard it began saying, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him as a drink. But the rest of them said, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were open and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised from the dead. And coming out of the tombs after Christ's resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake, And the things that were happening became very frightened and said, truly, this was the son of God. Father, I ask that you would give us a clear glimpse to these last few hours on the cross. And I pray that we would be changed. Would it affect us in just the way you would have it affect us this morning? You know the hearts of those who have found their way here. Would you deal appropriately, Father? Would you deal appropriately for your glory? Amen. At 9 a.m. at the third hour, Jesus is put on the cross. From 9 a.m. to noon, Jesus has very little to say. And what he does say is pretty typical of the gracious Savior that is Jesus. He says, recorded throughout the Gospels, in the Gospels, they all give their own accounts and they, they, they harmonize together. Each one has a different perspective and we pick up different pieces. So this morning I'm going to give you what is the harmony of the Gospels, so to speak. At 9 a.m., the third hour, Jesus is put on the cross from 9 a.m. till noon. Very little is said or heard of Jesus. There are three statements that Jesus gives and they're all typical of Jesus. They're all typical of the gracious God that he was. They are all marks of mercy. The first was, and you're very familiar with it, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do as they nailed him and hung him on a tree. At that, they cast lots for his clothes. Please understand that is a direct quote of Psalm 22. Psalm 22 says that they would do that very thing. Interesting that nobody noticed. That's what Psalm 22 had said would happen. The second statement Jesus gives in these first three hours on the cross is this. Truly, I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. He was speaking, of course, to one of the thieves that was hung next to him. One of the thieves was mocking him, a criminal mocking a God on a tree crucified by man. And the other criminal speaks up on behalf of Jesus. He says, do you not even fear God? Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus looks at him and says, truly, today, by this man's faith in him as God, 
He declares, you shall be with me in paradise. Another act of mercy. The third statement, his final act of mercy in these three initial hours of the cross was what every mom wants to hear. Well, not what every mom wants to hear, but what every mom hopes their, their son becomes. Hanging on the cross, don't miss this, hanging on the cross now, at the end of the first three hours, he says, woman, behold your son, speaking of the beloved disciple, i.e. John, and he, in a sense, hands the care of his mother to another. He says, woman, he doesn't call her mom. He, in a sense, separates himself from her. He says, this is your son. This is your mother, he declares to John. He takes care of mom. (laughs) Isn't that good? Mercy, mercy, mercy. The first three hours while hanging on a tree after being beaten and scourged. It's now high noon, the sixth hour. The high point of the day. Don't miss that. We now begin the final three hours. The Gospels tell us that for at least the next three hours, well, specifically for the next three hours, all the land, and literally that word land in the Scripture, uh, is the word that's used for earth. So not just the area around Jerusalem, not just the area around the cross, but potentially all of the earth goes dark. For three hours at the, at the high point of the day, At high noon, clouds roll in. It goes dark. Now, we know that this isn't simply a natural eclipse. Because the Passover was celebrated at what was called the Paschal moon, which is a full moon. The moon and the sun were too far apart for this to be an eclipse. We don't don't frankly know. uh, But what we do know is that in some supernatural way, in some supernatural way, God turned the lights out on the earth. Now, let me tell you why. In Isaiah, Zephaniah, Amos, uh, Joel, uh, many other Old Testament passages, many other Old Testament scenarios, we see the lights go out. We see darkness. And in each case, tradition equates that darkness with, guess what? Judgment. Judgment. God turning his face, turning the light of his face, the countenance of his face away from his enemies Please note, for that these three hours, not a word was spoken by man or God. In Scripture, these three hours go by. There is no, there's no account of Jesus saying a word. There's no account of God saying a word. It's as if Jesus, the high priest, has entered into the Holy of Holies, where no one else can go. And he has laid himself, the perfect lamb, on the mercy seat, which was atop the Ark of the Covenant, covering the law of God. It's as if Jesus has entered into that holy of holies. By the way, we're waiting outside in the darkness. We're not privy to what's going on in the darkness. The judgment of God looks down through the cherubim wings over the Ark of the Covenant to his broken law, his violated law, but in between he sees it covered by the shed blood Of the sacrifice, which is Jesus. The blood of Jesus laid on the altar in darkness. We don't get to watch. 
We don't get to hear. We don't get to see. For these three hours, it's God and Jesus. Scripture says, He who knew no sin actually became sin on our behalf. God has caused the iniquity of all of us to what? Fall on Him. One died for all, the just for the unjust. He was a ransom for the many. And it was dark and there were no words uttered for three hours. It's now the ninth hour. The conclusion, the ending of those three hours. And here's where everything changes. At 3 p.m. the silence breaks. Jesus cries out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, a few things about this. Number one, Jesus did not call him father. Do you notice that? My God. It's the judicial term or title for God. In the darkness. In the darkness. He is no longer father. This is the only time he does not call him father in this account. He is now the judicial God who has darkened his face from the very son, the second person of the Trinity. Robert Browning calls this the orphaned cry of Emmanuel. This is a direct quote, once again, by the way, from Psalm 22. You see, Jesus wasn't just on the cross spurting out anything. Understand, he quotes the very first line of Psalm 22, which is a prophetic psalm of David, which declares the abandonment that the crucified will go through. Direct quote. Um, I, don't, I don't know how else to say it except for folks, you can't make this stuff up. You, you can't make this stuff up. You can't put these pieces together in some make-believe story. The book of Habakkuk tells us that God cannot even look upon sin. John MacArthur said it this way. God turned his back on Jesus while on the cross because he could not look upon sin, even or perhaps especially sin in his own son. He could not look upon it. Peter says it this way, that Jesus bore our sins in his body on the cross. He actually became Sin. Please note that none of the beatings, mockings, pain, not the thorns in his brow, not the lacerated flesh, not the stakes through his hands nor his feet, not the agony of looming suffocation caused Jesus to cry out. As he cried out. As God had turned his back in his face on the sun. That alone. Caused Jesus a miserable and measurable sorrow. For the first and only time, fellowship among the Trinity is broken. This is a truth in Scripture unexplained. Martin Luther was said at the reading of this, this abandonment by the Father to the Son, said to have gone into seclusion for an extended period of time just simply to contemplate this truth. The story goes that he came back. He came back just as confused. Scripture doesn't tell us how this works. Scripture doesn't tell us how, how the Father could be separated from the Son. How, how the Father could turn His back on His Son. We're left, to, we're left to contemplate the fact that Jesus became sin. And that was the only way 
the father, even though it was his son, could not look upon sin. Jesus was more than a good man, wrongly accused and killed. He was more than just a martyr. He was more than just some guy who died for a, for a just cause. He died because sin was placed upon him, evidenced by the father turning his back, turning his face. Now, in further fulfillment of Psalm 22, Jesus looks at those at the foot of the cross and says this. The Gospels record, I thirst, I thirst. The darkness has lifted. That time separated from God has ended. And Jesus says, I thirst. Psalm 22 says that his strength is dried up and his tongue cleaves to his jaws. Again, direct fulfillment of prophecy. I don't have the time, but if I did, I'd tell you about uh, the one in the Old Testament called the light of the world. Who uh, was. Uh, who was prophesied at his birth to his mother by an angel that he would be set apart for God's special use uh, in his work. He was uh, he was despised by his brothers. He was despised by Judah. He was betrayed by Judah into the hands of the Gentiles. And uh, as he was turned over to his death, he breaks the bonds of death, slays the enemy, and uh, uses the very implement that they meant to kill him with to kill them, and he, he, he wins. And in that moment, God, uh, God turns that place from a place of death to a place of life. And that man cries out, if you know your, path, if you know your scripture, Judges 14, 15, 16, he cries out, I thirst, God. Samson, I thirst, Direct correlations. All scripture points to this moment. That's just a sample. At this point, the Gospel of John says that Jesus, seeing that all things had been tetelestai, completed, said, it is tetelestai. It is ended or completed. At which point, like a good soldier, he bowed his head and he surrendered his spirit, saying, Luke tells us, Father, would you notice now that the Father, the Father is now who he addresses, not the judicial God. The darkness is gone. The light has risen. Jesus surrenders his soul. He declares that it's done. What had to be done, the darkness that had to come, it was endured. It is finished. Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Please note that Jesus was not finished. He says, it was finished. It was finished. His work of ransoming the many was done. For the purposes he was sent, it was done. Jesus was not done. Also note that while Jesus was in much pain, he still had more left in him, humanly speaking. Both the criminals on either side of Jesus made it longer than he did. Uh, it's estimated that 30,000 men were crucified by this time by Rome. By the time Jesus is put on a cross, most of them make it a long time. The point of crucifixion is not death. The point of crucifixion is suffering, torture. Crucifixion was designed to keep you alive in as much pain as possible for as long as possible. The 
Men were not crucified simply for the purposes of death. They were crucified as slow torture. The Jews could not kill him. The Romans could not kill him. Jesus said it this way. No man takes my life from me. I lay it down myself, he says in John 10. At this moment, by this own will, Jesus lets go. In Luke, he uses a word that literally means he sends away his spirit. He could have made it longer. Jesus, Jesus was in control of his life. Uh, by the way, you and I can't do that. He's the only man who can do that. He's the only man that can do that. And most assuredly, he will, as we know, take it up again if he lays it down. The darkness is done. Into the Father's hands, now Jesus goes. The darkness is lifted. Jesus declares it is finished. And he dies. By his own will, he lays down his life as a ransom for the many. Now, now we get to our point. Watch this. Because everyone is going to see that the Father is going to put his stamp of approval, his stamp of agreement and his stamp of acceptance on Jesus' words that it is, in fact, indeed finished. Watch this. The gospel tells us that at the very moment when Jesus left the veil of his humanity, the veil of the temple was ripped. Hang with me here for just a moment. Try and picture this in your head. At the very moment that the veil of Jesus' humanity was left, the veil of the temple was ripped in half. If you're familiar with the temple or even the tabernacle layout, you know that there were several areas within the temple or the tabernacle. Each area had a different uh, clearance level, if you will. You couldn't just go wandering around the temple, even if you were a priest. Only certain priests could go in certain places. Even if you were the high priest, didn't give you free reign to walk about anywhere into any corner of the temple that you wanted. Access was limited and restricted. The represented presence of God himself dwelt in the temple. And the nearer you came to his area, where he dwelt specifically, the more limited the access became. That area where the presence of God, the representative presence of God dwelled specifically was called the Holy of Holies. All right, now hang with me here. Please understand that because of sin, humanity was forbidden to be in the presence of God. To be in the presence of a holy God meant death in a state of sin. Moses, because of this truth, was hid in the cleft of the rock even when he approached God. Israel was ordered to stay away from the mountain. God said, lest they break through and my glory, my glory have to break out against them. John, when called into the heavens, fell down and pretended to be dead. Bottom line, for our own protection, there has always been a barrier between us and the very presence of God. A barrier separating men from God. The spiritual barrier is sin. The spiritual barrier has always been sin. The physical barrier was in the form of a curtain that separated the holy place where the priests did all of their work and the Holy of Holies, where the presence of God dwelt. The Holy of Holies is where the presence of God dwelt, above the mercy seat, above the Ark of the Covenant, and between the outstretched wings of the golden cherubim. 
In the holy place, the priest performed the daily duties on behalf of the people. This is where they, they worked on a daily basis. Between them and the Holy of Holies, there was a, a barrier, a separating curtain. Once a year during Passover, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest and only the high priest was to enter into the Holy of Holies to offer a Passover lamb for all the sins of the nation. Once a year, only one guy, and he had to follow instructions to a T. If he failed to follow instructions, his life would be taken. The approach to God, the approach to God must be on his terms. That was the, that was the symbol of all these things in the temple. The whole setup symbolized this. Now, Rusty, put up, that, put up that first slide there. Let me tell you about the curtain or the veil of separation. It was an impressive sight. In the temple of Jesus' day, the veil was at least 15 feet wide. And 60 feet high. And anywhere from 3 to 4 inches thick, depending on what source you use. You get that? 15 feet wide, 60 feet high. Of the best material made. Decorated ornately. 3 to 4 inches thick. First century historian and Pharisee Josephus, who actually uh, was able to walk into the temple and see the rent veil. He said this. He said that uh, not even horses strapped to this veil or teams of horses strapped to this veil on either side could tear it apart, much less the hands of men. You, you're, getting a, you're getting an idea of the, of the magnitude of this barrier, of this curtain that separated man from the presence of God. It was one solid curtain from wall to wall. There was no separation in it. There was no partition in it. There was no way you could peek through the curtain. It was one solid piece from wall to wall. The high priest had to lift one corner to enter on that one day of the year. You get the picture of him lifting just the edge, peeking in to the presence of God. You also need to know that while in the holy place, that's just outside the Holy of Holies, priests wore very ornate uh, garments, very ornate costumes, as instructed by God, lined with jewels and bells and all kinds of stuff. But when entering the Holy of Holies, you got to understand, they were instructed to wear only a white linen ephod. And that's it. Simply bare, they take in their sacrifice alone before God. All right, so what happened to the veil at the death of Jesus, and what does it mean? Let me give you seven things, and I'll be done, and we're going to sing. Number one, because everything, let me say, everything hinges on this. Let me give you just a few things that this means. Number one, it says it was ripped from top to bottom. This was solely the work of God. My first point, it was ripped from top to bottom. It was solely the work of God. No man could have done this. Religion is the work of man to God. Christianity, true Christianity is the work of God to man. Don't miss that it was torn from the top to the bottom. God did this as a stamp of approval on the words of Jesus. It is finished and he tore 
He rent the veil from the top to the bottom. Number two, it was ripped from the top to the bottom. And you said you already said that. But let me tell you why it's also important again. There can be no repair to the barrier veil. There isn't just a small hole. It's completely split in two, making the way into the Holy of Holies and thus the presence of God, a wide open highway for any who would come. Even the greatest of sinners, not just a big enough tear so that a guy with just a little bit of sin can slip in through the side. God tore it from top to bottom, splitting it wide open, full access. Number three, it was ripped from top to bottom, meaning it wasn't just damaged. There isn't just a small hole. It's completely split in two, making a way into the Holy of Holies. It wasn't just rolled up to be used for another day. It was demolished by God himself. God says, God says, God makes this decision. And this is good news for us. He says, I'm done with this barrier. At it is finished, God says, I'm done with this barrier. I'm done with it. Number four, the rip marks the end of the system. The rip marks the end of the system. From this point on, the temple is useless. The sacrifices have all ended the priests are thus unnecessary can you imagine during the passover celebration hundreds of thousands of people are there in town surrounding the temple when this happens uh priests are in the holy place doing their work uh, estimated that they slayed a quarter of a million lambs in the passover celebration and so you've got priests in there just like butchers going to work in the holy place outside the temple god's in there his presence nobody can go in there there's this thick ornate huge barrier between us and god we're doing our part out here and it's it's going nuts out there and then all of a sudden and it is finished god rips the veil and these guys are standing now in the presence of the holy god which they were never supposed to see In 70 A.D., just a few years later, it would be completely destroyed, never to be used again. Never to be rebuilt. The veil that protected the priests and all of us from the presence of God was rent from top to bottom. Not only do you have people running for their life, you have the complete crushing blow to the whole entire sacrificial system. None of it is needed any longer. Do you get that? At the veil's tearing, God says, none of this is needed any longer. This shadow, this symbol is done. It's ended. The perfect and final lamb has been offered and accepted to telestai. It is finished. God stamps it, paid in full. You know that word to telestai in New Testament days? It, 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 was, a, uh, it, was, a, it was a term of commerce. When you paid your final bill, they would stamp that on your receipt, so to speak, to telestai. You're free and clear. God says, it's done. Free and clear. It's finished. Jesus said it. I confirm it. He rips the veil. Number five, the torn veil means that the VIP section is no more. Humanity gets an all-access pass by way of Jesus. There is no more fear of death going into his presence. Isn't this good news? 
the God who the one man one time a year had to barely peek, lift the curtain. He had to go through sacrificial washings before he went in. He had to do it a certain way. He had to wear a certain thing. He had to say a certain thing. He had to offer a certain thing and get his butt back out of there. Now is free access. You're not going to die. Not only can you look into the Holy of Holies, not only can you peek, go in. Tradition tells us that a rope was tied to the foot of the high priest as he went into uh, the Holy of Holies just in case he died. Nobody else wanted to go in there and pull him out. So they tie a rope around his foot. Uh, maybe they put bells around his robe. They certainly wear bells out in the Holy of Holies. There's some question whether they wore them into the holiest place. But some traditions say that they tied a rope around this guy's foot because nobody wanted to go in there. Listen, there's no more fear of death. The veil has been torn. God did it. God says... There's no more barrier. There are no more worries. God is near and accessible. Draw near to him. What's more, it's always open. At the end of Luke, Preston and I found that the, the very last words of the gospel of Luke, it says that they worshiped Jesus at his ascension. As Jesus departed after his resurrection, they worshiped him. And then when he is gone, they continued daily to worship now in the temple. We're sitting there in the office trying to figure this out. They weren't allowed in the holy place, much less the holy of holies, and now they're worshiping daily in the presence of God. Do you see? Now they get to go in. Now we get to go in. There is no, there is no barrier. There is no VIP section. There is no priest that has to go in on our behalf because the high priest, the great priest, the final priest, went in and he did what he had to do and it's done for all and forever. And we all get free access. Number six, the torn veil means that personal relationship is restored. In Genesis 1, there is darkness covering the expanse, and God speaks a word, and then there is light, and that light brings life. What does that sound a whole lot like? At the cross, we find darkness across the expanse until God speaks, and there is light, and that light brings life to our world. Once again, it's not just what we have done that has separated us, but it's who we are. He doesn't just take care of what we've done. He resolves the problem between the two differing natures, our fallen nature and the perfect nature of a holy God. The difference in our nature hangs up a veil between us and God, but Christ has ripped that down as well. We are free to walk once again with God as Adam did in Eden. The relationship has been restored. Here's the last one. The ripped veil is Jesus himself. Don't miss this. The ripped veil is Jesus himself. Rusty, put up Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10 says this, of this climactic moment in all history. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place, that's the holy place, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the what? Veil. That is his what? Flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us what? Draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Jesus is the veil that was torn. His flesh was rent. It is finished. Darkness is over. The sun rises. It's done. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. God says, it is done. 
It's, it's this done. It's completely, finally, from top to bottom, over. Now let me warn you. Scripture says that Jesus, as the veil, as the rent veil, Jesus himself is the only way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by him, but by his rent flesh. There is no other acceptable sacrifice available any longer, not even temporarily. There is no other acceptable sacrifice acceptable. Without Christ, you are without hope in your approach to God. He is, he is indeed the only way. The, all the other systems are crushed by God himself. This is it. It's finished. This is all we need. You come by way of this rent veil, which is the flesh of Jesus. That's the only way. Jesus himself is the veil that was rent for you and I. In Christ we find ourselves seated in the heavenlies, near to God, in the very presence of God. My friends, Jesus wasn't a good man who died unjustly for the just cause. He wasn't some historical figure that lived a good life as a model to us. He wasn't simply uh, a martyr on behalf of the weak. He died as a ransom for many so that it could be finished. After seeing this, are you at all surprised that three days later he picked his life back up? You can't be, can you? After seeing, after seeing these three culminating hours of all history, are you at all surprised that three days later he gets back up? You see, the miracles don't start at the resurrection. They start at the cross. And God puts his stamp of approval on it. It is finished. Let's pray.